Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talk with student leader Candace Milner about hashtag leader problems and making the most of four years. How are you, Candace? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I can't complain. How are you liking the spring day? The weather's starting to um, get nice. I'm loving it. I, I'm definitely a person that, like, I like winter when it's snowing, but if mm-hmm. it's not snowing, I don't understand the point of the cold. I either want it to be snowing or warm. So I'm that, happy. That's it. So you don't like your transitional seasons? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Interesting. And my allergies don't either. So. And how was your spring break? Um, it was good. I was I stayed around campus. I uh, got explored in D.C. Some did some work with one D.C. Like that's my internship. So it was mm-hmm. chill. It was relaxing. All right. So actually, you started where I wanted to start. One D.C. Tell me about your work with them. Um. So I'm an intern for one D.C. through the KI. Um, Kalamanowitz Initiative here at Georgetown. I'm an organizing fellow, and this is my second year doing it. Um, I definitely think it's been one of my most rewarding experiences at Georgetown, Um, just specifically because it gave me a chance to break that Georgetown bubble and get involved in the D.C. community, and I've learned so much about D.C., and I've been able to fall in love with the community of D.C. and not, like, the Capitol Hill part or the politics Mm -hmm. part, but the people who actually make D.C. and actually give life to D.C., I've had a chance to meet some of those folks and work with some of those folks through on D.C., so it's definitely been a blessing that work that I've been able to do there. So what kind of issues do you guys organize around for One D.C.? Um, so primarily we organize around the right to housing and the right to income. Um, so with the right to income, we're... We've currently started to create Black Worker Center here in D.C. There are Black Worker Centers around the nation, and this is the first one in D.C. So how can we get Black workers to take control of the work that they are involved in? How can we make sure that Black workers have access to fair work with fair benefits and fair wages? Um, So we look at things such as co-ops, the type of trainings that they have in D.C. Should those be switched to apprenticeship? Apprenticeships. Yeah, trainings instead of just, like, giving people training and not being able to place them in jobs. Um, And then for the right to housing, we believe that housing is, affordable housing is a basic human right. So what can we do to make sure that private developers aren't pushing folks out of D.C., aren't pushing long-time residents out of their neighborhoods, out of their homes, aren't um, coming in and... uh, like redoing condos and apartments and then kicking people out or making ridiculous laws that if you have so many children, you have to pay higher rent. Mm-hmm. Um, things of that nature is kind of what we organize around. So how did you start in this kind of thing? Did mm-hmm. you do this type of stuff in high school or when you came to college, was this the start of you thinking about organizing? Um, I definitely would say college. I feel like in high school I did more service, direct service type stuff, which I think a lot of high schoolers do. That's kind of what I knew. Um, it wasn't until I got to college that I started to understand the difference between service and organizing and that organizing was a thing. And I kind of just think that like on campus, I kind of naturally got into it just because of the leadership positions I had. And then it just branched out to me kind of thinking of ways I can incorporate that in like my life. So I think this is an interesting distinction because um, back in my day, mm-hmm. um, we didn't have this huge mechanism for service. Like, I know at some high schools you have required community service, yeah. and there's all of this kind of culture of volunteering that happens mm-hmm. young, which I think is positive. But what are some of the things that organizing does to either 
disrupt service or take service to the next level? Um, I definitely think, I think it disrupts service, but in a good way. I think a lot of times with service, it's not, it's not about what other folks can do. It's about what you can do for others, which mm -hmm. I think is a lot of times very problematic. It takes away the potential that people have, especially people without access to certain resources. It kind of, it, I feel like a lot of times it can play into that power dynamic, whereas organizing isn't, hey, let me come and help you. It's, hey, this is what's happening. What should we do about it? It's, hey, this is what's going on. What conversations can we have to better understand this? And what conversations can we have to help our community as a whole? And I think that's the main difference in organizing. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's about the community learning together and progressing together. And so in terms of you have been a big organizer on this campus. Yes. Anytime something goes down, you're in the middle of it. <laughs> If, there's some, if something goes down, Candace is in the mix. And I think it's interesting, you know, um, in my experiences of you as a student and other students, when they talk about who their best friend is or who the person who's the most effective leader, they always name you. I don't know if you know that's what people say behind your back. But it's true. It's like, well, Candace, Candace has got this. She's going to handle this. Or Candace is such a good friend. She's such a good listener. And so what are some of the things that you think you've developed mm -hmm. in your role as an organizer over these four years of college? Um, I think the main thing you kind of said is that listening piece. Um, I've, I try to be cognitive of how much space I take up because I do know like on this campus, students do see me as a student leader and a lot of times they want to hear what I have to say. Um, but I feel like a lot of the things I've done, ha they haven't been my ideas. It's come from listening to the community and organizing that part and for me that's where the organization comes in after the listening the listening has to happen first you have to understand what people are frustrated about what people want to see change what people want to see come and come to fruition and then that's what you act on so I think it's that listening part has really been key and then even beyond that listening part is um, definitely like community and having each other's back and we're kind of I guess speaking truth to power mm -hmm. um, especially when I think about when I first started after be, hashtag being black at Georgetown tell happened. us a little bit about being black so, at Georgetown um, it was hashtag BBGU it happened my sophomore year so the fall of 2013 I want to say December and it was this hashtag we did, and we modeled it after Michigan University who did BBMU and it was this huge online campaign of just hundreds and thousands of tweets of what it means to be black at Georgetown, um, whether it was the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and from that, we came up with demands that we presented to the university, basically surrounding student affairs, academic life on um, campus, alumni engagement with folks, alumni of color. And um, I feel like that's where I started by like on-campus organizing. And throughout that, I think it was the first time that we, as in like, that generation of student activists on campus had really started to talk to administration in ways where it's like, we understand the power we hold as students and you're gonna to listen to what we have to say and you're gonna do something about it. And I think doing that for, for me at least, it was very intimidating because you're looking at the president of the university or the chief of staff and you're just like, you're wrong about this, 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 and this, and you need to do this by then. And, um, the power dynamic set in again. And I think it was because of the bonds that we had as students that we were able to go in and do that confidently and understand and believe that we had the power to do this and we should get results from that. So so in that process, I think that's, you, you know, you bring up the kind of um, 
the upside of this, right? Yeah. You have to come, get over your fear. You, you know, challenge administration and you challenge um, authority. But in the process of doing that community building, things get messy. They do. People fight. Um, people fall out. <laughs> people disagree with each other. How do you manage conflict in a role as an organizer or being part of a community that's trying to get something done? Yeah, it's really difficult because so much just depends on the situation. Um, so sometimes I feel like there's times where the conflict arises and you're just like, hey, I'm just waiting for these people to graduate so we can move forward. <laughs> That's one strategy. That's I'm just going to wait, wait it out. out. <laughs> sometimes you just have to wait it out. And sometimes it just is trying to find the middle ground. I know um, even like when we were making decisions about what we wanted to accept from the university, there's an array of opinions, an array of what's good and what's not. And sometimes it's talking through it, sometimes it's arguing through it, sometimes mm -hmm. it's going back for days, for hours, whatever it takes. And um, it's it, it can be extremely difficult because it's like not only do we see them as enemies? Now we have this strife within ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and it's usually it's usually like, should we take the middle ground or should we just go for it all? And I mm -hmm. think that's usually when like the conflict comes because some people are like, let's take these low-hanging fruits and climb. And other folks are like, no, we just should just keep climbing. Like, don't let mm -hmm. them appease us. Um, so how to get through that conflict? I, I just think it depends on the day. Sometimes it's just arguing about it. Sometimes it's just like, we're gonna stop arguing and we're gonna vote. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just, well, this person was in communication with them and this is what happened. So how do we move on from here? Um, when you um, pictured what your years in college would be, did you see yourself as someone who was like participating in sit-ins or someone who, you know, was reading the administration or, <laughs> you know, I think that it's so interesting about student activism at this moment. So like if we think mm -hmm. about the students who are coming into college, mm -hmm. they're coming into this moment where yeah. if that's what they want to be about, there's a place to jump in. I think when you started, it was a little bit different. Yeah. So when you imagined what college was going to be like, did you imagine yourself in this role? Not not at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, and, and it's funny, like a lot of people who know me or had conversations about me hear me talk about my grandmother specifically, where my grandmother's, how much she means to me. And in her, like in, while she was in college, she participated in these sit-ins and it was the 60s. It was the civil rights movement. It was like the thing. It was the time that was happening. And having conversations with her, I see so many parallels. It's weird to me because, mm -hmm. like, she's like, I didn't go to college for that. Like, my mother was mad. Like, I ruined one of my coats getting the holes. Then, like, wow. we had to pay for a new one. And even though my experience isn't the same, I see so many parallels. And no, I just thought I was going to come to college, major in accounting. That didn't happen. <laughs> like, go on to law school and make money. Like, that was, that's what college was for me a way to make money be successful by like conventional standards and um, I think well first my first accounting class kind of made me think differently about that mm -hmm. and I was like oh <laughs> <laughs> like maybe not so maybe, much maybe not this one <laughs> but I think also just learning more about myself and learning more about the communities which I feel like I belong to and mm -hmm. I represent really made me think differently about how I even approach the idea of success um, so, yeah, is not at all. So let me ask you this. So when you and your grandma are talking about mm -hmm. being part of protests, what is that like to talk to her about mm -hmm. that? Um, it's interesting because on one hand, it's like we're talking about things and we understand things, especially when we're talking about race or um, 
even the intersection of being black and being women. So, like, we have a lot of parallels of how we think about things, but I feel like the conversation always ends with be careful and be safe. And um, I think that right there shows just shows how much trauma can be involved in activism, how much trauma can be involved in organizing, especially for her in, you know, mm -hmm. in the 60s. So... I, I think it's interesting to see how our conversations fall because and throughout the conversation there's seriousness, there's laughter, there's agreement, like, mm -hmm. no, nah, I know that's right. And they just <laughs> hate <it>. like <laughs> there's all of these things, but I think it always ends with like an be careful because I love you moment. And mm -hmm. I, I just think that's so relevant to the world we're living in now. Um even I feel like last time we talked, we were talking about Donald Trump. I hate to say his name, but we were, and she's just like, people are crazy, so be careful. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, I will, Grandma, I will. No, so. And so when you think about, like, you know, when they do the movie montage mm -hmm. of the Candace Milner story, <laughs> um, I can't wait to see who plays you. Queen, well, Queen Latifah? That, that, if I had someone play me right now, it would be Queen Latifah. Oh, my or gosh. I would play her. I'm gonna become an actress to play Queen Latifah. Okay, so Queen Latifah. Oh my gosh! Um, can I pick whoever I want to pick me now? Since we're just, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like a Viola Davis. Okay. But not how to get away with a murder, yeah. Viola Davis, because that's too much. Yeah. Um, maybe a Viola Davis as the professor, though it'd be a little weird because Queen Latifah and her are probably the same age. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Hollywood so, does it all. So when um, someone's doing the montage of the Candace yeah. Milner story and they're going through the Georgetown years, what are the scenes mm -hmm. that you would want them to include? Um, so I would definitely want a scene just of, like, friendship. I think mm -hmm. friendship has definitely grounded me throughout my time at Georgetown. Um, I've built amazing relationships, and some of the deepest friendships I've made, I've made here at Georgetown. And it's funny because I, I, I'm actually really close to my friends from high school. Mm -hmm. Like, we we talk regularly. We're, like, trying to plan trips now. We're, we're really close. But I think something that I've gained that I feel like other people is, like, one or the other. Like, I'm really close to my friends in high school. I'm really mm -hmm. close to my friends at college. I came to college and I also built like amazing friendships with people that I I believe will last for a very long time. So just days in a dorm eating pizza at 2 a.m. talking about nothing and everything. I think I would definitely want that to be in my Georgetown days because I think that's that's what's grounded me and gotten me through. Um, beyond that, I would say definitely the die-in we did mm -hmm. last Christmas, Christmas of 2014. Um, so we staged a die-in here on campus after the murders of Mike Brown and Eric Gardner um, during a Christmas tree, the annual Christmas tree lighting. And I think that was one of, it was probably the most powerful moment I've had here at Georgetown. Um, just all the folks that came out and supported it, all the folks that took part of it. The, it was just like, it was just something in the air that mm -hmm. night. And, you know, we laid on the ground. Well, we didn't, we didn't interrupt the prayer, so we were there for more than four and a half minutes. But, like, it was raining, it was cold, and mm -hmm. it, it didn't matter. I remember seeing you it that day. Matter. I yeah. saw you at the front gates, and I said, are you up to something? Yeah. And you're like, you're like, check Twitter later. And, like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, and I believe, were you part of the group of students who went to Ferguson? I wasn't, because mm -hmm. I was at another conference that weekend, so I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I was sad about that. Um, so... When your graduation comes mm -hmm. in, what, like two months? Yeah, I think we're at 56 days. We're at 56 <laughs> days, and um, is your family coming? Yes. yes. And when they come here and they see kind of you in this setting, mm -hmm. what is going to surprise them? Um, or what are they going to learn about you? Yeah. I think in general, um, it's 
it's funny because I feel like in general I can be more reserved and I I'm, I feel like I'm more of a chill person, especially in like big crowds and stuff. Mm -hmm. I just sit and look around. I'm more chill. Um, and even my brother, he dropped me off at like the beginning of last semester. And it surprised him how many friends I actually had. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's just that, like, how many friends I have. And I think what will also surprise them is if they see me interact with administration, how I interact with administration. Because um, I know just walking around, I've seen people just like, hey, John, hey. And it's mm -hmm. like, like, like they're not 50, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but just those interactions and seeing me kind of walk in walking those roles I think will be surprising to them. I'm also the baby of the family so like my family sees me as the baby of the family, me not too. the leader of the And family. I'm like so old. <laughs> and the same thing. And they're like look at you. Look how look, look at little you getting a PhD. I'm like I'm a grown up. I'm a grown up. Um, and so when you think about this experience, what do you think it was getting you in formation for? A, um... Honestly, at this point, I'm not sure. I mm -hmm. like I have aspirations. I have dreams. I think, if anything, it was the start of me figuring out what my passions actually are and what I actually want to dedicate my life to. Um, and I don't have that all figured out, and I'm okay with that. Like, I have a life to live. We'll probably go out tonight and think about it some more. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think I think it was the beginning of me figuring out what those passions are and just what what God has in store for me in life. It was the first glimpse of me being able to see that. That's beautiful. Um, and so one of the things that you have been working on is the Brave Summit. Yes. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about yes. what Brave is going to be all about? So the Brave Summit was the name was derived from the quote: "All the men are black." All the women are white, but some of us are brave. And we turned brave into an acronym. It stands for Black, Resilient, Artistic, Vigilant, and Enough. And it's basically a summit we decided to have here on campus to center the black woman. Um, it, so many things happen where like black women are added in here, added in there. We wanted black women to be the center of this summit. We want to talk about black women in a holistic view. What are black women doing in policy? What are black women doing in executive positions? What are black women doing in activism? What are the artistic things black women are contributing to this world? Because there's so many and they're so often overshadowed or forgotten. We want to create a space for black women here on campus and black women in the DMV in general and even across the nation can figure out, can come together and celebrate each other and celebrate everything that we've accomplished and everything that we've given to this space, this world we live in, because it's so much and it's so often forgotten. So, Brave is happening April twenty third. Yay! On get your University. Um, our website is gubravesummit.com, and our tickets are now on sale. We have about twenty early bird tickets left. Twenty. So you twenty get folks on it. Get on it, and um, I don't know. I'm just really excited for it. We have a great lineup of speakers. We have great students working to put it on and put it together we have a lot of sponsorships still coming in so i think it's going to be an amazing time amazing time i can't wait and i can't wait to participate and so the last question the question i've asked everyone on the podcast if there was one thing that you wish all your professors knew about you mm -hmm. either starting in a class or mm -hmm. during this experience what do you think that would be wow <laughs> it's funny like thinking of this as a singer who has very few classes. <laughs> um, I would think, I would think I would want my professors to know how I process things. I'm very much someone who likes to sit on information 
and think about it before I speak about it. So um, I feel like in a lot of my classes, it can seem like, oh, you're not participating. It's like, no, I'm thinking about it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm thinking. I gotta, I gotta think through it in my head and I have to argue with myself about it first so I'm prepared for anything. I have to be prepared for the clapbacks. So um, <laughs> I, I just, I think it would be the different ways I process things and kind of understanding that, which can be hard to understand because I don't understand it sometimes, but yeah. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank you. That was great. And now it's time for our Ask the Doctor segment, where students from all over the country ask me questions about surviving college. Young, in love, and in a dorm right. Hi, Dr. Sue. I've been dating my partner for a year. We're really happy and spend the majority of our time together. Now that we're about to start our sophomore year, we have the option of moving into a dorm with one another. My heart tells me that this makes sense, but I'm worried that I won't get enough alone time to focus on my schoolwork. Also, if we were to break up, which I can't see us doing, I'd be stuck with him for the rest of the year, unless we could find someone to agree to swap. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, wow. So relationship questions I usually don't take. But since you asked, I've got a few thoughts. Um, so one of the things that is great about college for a lot of students is that it's the first time that they've had these have really intense romantic relationships. And so for some of you who um, dated in high school, you find that your college relationships might have, um, you know, more closeness, more time together, you don't have the rules of your household, so you can spend a lot more time together. So it's a little bit different than high school. The one thing I will say about a situation like this is that you do want to think about how you set boundaries, not only in your romantic relationships, but all your relationships. I think very similar things happen when best friends try to share a dorm room or when a group of friends decide to go um, in on a house. It can be really exciting to think about that experience improving the relationship, but it can only help the relationship if you're really honest about what you're afraid of. So what I would advise you do is to talk to your partner about what the rules will be in this new living situation. What does it mean if you want to have dinner in the res halls with your friends and not your partner? What does it mean when your partner wants to hang out with friends and doesn't want to include you? Every relationship has to negotiate what every person wants. And as long as you're open and you're honest about what feels comfortable and what doesn't feel right, then you can make the best decision for you. Also, one thing I always say, just like school and in love, you can make a mistake and recover from it. So if the relationship doesn't turn out to be the one that you want it to be, it's okay. You can chalk it up to life experience and know that you know more for the future. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media on Twitter at Office Hours Pod and on Instagram on Office Hours Podcast.